Hey everyone, if you're like me, I bet you have a project or projects you want to finish, a writing project, or a writing project that you're itching to start, and we have an answer for you at NaNoWriMo. It's called Camp NaNoWriMo, and it happens in July, so you can sign up now. It's free. Go to NaNoWriMo.org and sign up. And the great thing about Camp NaNoWriMo is it has all the flavor and community of NaNoWriMo. Uh, it has a goal and a deadline approach, but it's not about writing a novel necessarily unless you want to write a novel. You can set your word count goal for 10 words or 10,000 words or, I don't know, maybe 10 million words. I haven't tested that one. But try it out. Goal and deadline is uh, create a midwife. Uh, keep writing during the summer. Great time to even use this time of July to plan your NaNoWriMo novel. So pick a creative project that gives you joy. And sign up on NaNoWriMo.org, and I hope to see you in NaNoLand in July. Hello, artists, creators, big dreamers, and empire builders. Welcome to another episode of Right Minded. I'm Brooke Warner, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Grant Faulkner. And Grant, I was considering the other day how we've done two trends in the past year about Brandon Sanderson. And one of the things that's so compelling about his story, of course, is that he earned a record-breaking amount of money with his Kickstarter campaign. But the deeper part of the story that I'm actually interested in is how he built out an empire based on his books and his content. He's prolific, uh, as are most successful fantasy authors. But he's also got all these other side hustles going on that tie into everything, basically, like NFTs and art. And so when he goes into these big promotions, he has all this buy-in from his fan base. And the reason that I'm prefacing today's show with all that context is because today's guest, N.D. Jones, is kind of on a similar trajectory, like not maybe quite as huge as Sanderson, a bit more of a down-to-earth version of it. Uh, But I was really impressed by her site, her content, and the fact that she has lots of products in addition to her books. And whenever I talk to genre of fiction writers, I'm always like, you know, you have to do a lot of heavy lifting. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot ahead of you, basically. It's what it takes to be successful in that space. Uh, and it's not to intimidate folks out of doing, you know, sci-fi fantasy horror, but rather to say like there is actually a baseline (laughs) that's been established for those genre writers. And Endy is someone I think we could look to as an example of someone who's doing it right, which kind of got me excited to talk about this a bit for the theme of today's show. Yeah, so true, Brooke. And, you know, that it's both daunting and inspiring to see someone like Endy and what she's accomplished. And I think when you're a new writer and you're starting out, you know, you're looking at the whole business of creating a brand and a platform, perhaps, and it's impossible not to feel a little intimidated, especially if it's your desire to become the next Brandon Sanderson. But I don't think Brandon Sanderson decided to be the Brandon Sanderson he is now. I think one thing led to the next, and he's a very smart writer who cares about how his books are published. And he had a vision and he followed his vision. And that's what I think everyone should do, you know, identify your vision and follow it. It doesn't have to be a big, expansive, groundbreaking vision. It just has to be true to yourself. And I think Andy uh, touched on that as well when she talked about this in our interview. And I also want to point out that, you know, like if you're a literary fiction writer, you have a whole kind of MFA industrial complex around you that gives you employment and income beyond your books. And, And genre writers don't have that. So they have to be actually more enterprising and, and kind of more, you know, just decide to be more business people, I think. And so that's always been interesting to me about how genre can lend itself to to being more commercial in that regard and being more, you know, kind of um, an entrepreneur. Any other thoughts on this, Brooke? 
Uh, yeah, it's a great word, enterprising. Uh, you know, and I teach platform building in some of my memoir classes, and you know, the author platform. It's, it's it's kind of an obsession, right? Like you have to build this author platform, and it does entail a lot of these kinds of things that ND is doing, you know, whether it's the newsletter or the gift shop or spinoff products or all that stuff is underneath like brand building and uh, platform building, and and so I, th- I think that's kind of what we're tapping into a little bit here and what I love is like platform building is about the why <laughs> that Andy mentioned in her interview today and and you have to keep showing up for people you have to tend to your fan base you have to do content and you can't do all that if you don't have a why and you don't have connection to purpose so I, I definitely love that she talked about that. I hope that everybody will go to ND's site. It's uh, ndjonesparanormalpleasure.com and just poke around a bit because the visual component is a real selling point. Uh, and then, you know, back to the platform and back to the passion, like you have to put so much time and energy into this stuff. And so if it's not something that you are going to live and breathe, it, it's kind of like, is it going to be sustainable? I think that's a question for people to consider. Um, and then for authors like ND, as she's sharing, she also has a full-time job, you know, so this is a passion and a job. I think she's got a lot of cool things going on because she's also doing it with her family. And there's also a deep identity part that is uh, purposeful to her. But this kind of stuff also becomes your identity. Um, and then you have your readers, you have fans if you're lucky, but you have to keep engaging with them. <laughs> So it's very demanding to be an author at this level. Um, And I I really do know the steadfastness that it takes to stay the course. And it's a lot about eye on the long game. Uh, And so I I just am inspired by ND and and her interview today, and especially this point, you know, of of homing in on the why. Yeah, it's really powerful. And I want to talk a little bit more about visuals book, because in genre fiction, it feels like the stakes just keep getting higher and higher. You know, there's a real look to a lot of these books and it will invariably involve, you know, hiring illustrators and artists to achieve that level of professionalism, you know, that we're seeing in the space. So what's your your take on what's required, the cost involved when it comes to hiring illustrators and designers and also generally the whole visual art piece we're seeing connected to this genre fiction empire building? <laughs> yeah, I find the art piece really fascinating um, and specifically to genre fiction. And just to clarify for people who don't know what we're talking about when we're talking about genre fiction it's like sci-fi fantasy um horror um romance could be thrown into that so it's like a sub-genre of fiction right um it makes sense to me that there's this overlap or synergy with images i think especially in sci-fi and fantasy uh good covers are always important but they're even more important in this space I think because the competition is so high, like the bar has been raised by other publishers and other authors. And so when you look at what they're offering up in this space, everything is visually compelling. A lot of story is being told on the cover. Um, They're not always illustrated, but there's like illustrated components. And when it comes to series, especially, you'll see a lot of illustrated covers or like what I might call fusion covers. Like ND, if you go to her site and look, she has, I think, fusion covers because it's photography, like her her 
protagonists are on the covers, uh, but then they have paranormal elements. And as is in the case of her new book, the woman on the cover has gold lightning shooting from her fingertips because that's part of the story. Uh, And so when you're hiring illustrators or uh, designers to do these kinds of unique works of art for your covers, first of all, you have to be thinking about, again, the long game, because if you have series, you have to be able to like replicate that look. Uh, And they're in high demand. The illustrators are in high demand. And that gets expensive. So if you're working with a publisher, maybe they'll cover those expenses. But if you're self-published, you're covering them yourself. And then in addition to that, you have to be considering like your whole brand, you know, look at like the banners on the website and, you know, the different things that you're selling. Uh, So it's just, it's a commitment, um, but it also is something that engages readers uh, a lot and more and more, I think. And so I'm like super taken by people who are in this space. Um, And Grant, I'm curious if you have an example of someone other than Brandon Sanderson from this kind of genre space who's doing something interesting because I have to imagine that uh, people at NaNoWriMo you know kind of springboard into this space from time to time yeah there are a lot of NaNoWriMo fantasy writers who've done really interesting things and I'm thinking of like Susan Denard and Cami Garcia and Daniel Page and in fact Brandon Sanderson is a NaNoWriMo writer I recently Mm -hmm. found out that that he participated in NaNoWriMo way back in 2001 uh, which would have made him among the first 5,000 writers to participate um, and he participated after that as well Um, but since you mentioned the wonderfully you know the lush and imaginative illustration that goes into fantasy covers I want to mention Jeff Vandermeer who we had on the show who wrote Wonder Book, uh, the world's f- first fully illustrated writing guide. And I got to say, it is illustrated. You know, I you can buy it just for the artwork and not even read it. Um, that is, uh, yeah. And that's also exactly what you brought up today, Brooke, or speaks to that about how the artwork, it's it's like museum quality. It's, it's really lush and sumptuous and intricate and scary and many other things. Um, and also just on the level of talking about enterprising authors, I want to call attention to Kwame Alexander because Kwame just started a podcast, Why Fathers Cry at Night, and that's named after his memoir of the same title. And Kwame was also the showrunner for the Disney Plus show, The Crossover, based on one of his children's books. And Kwame is also an executive producer with me on what we hope will turn into a TV show, America's Next Great Author. And this is all to say that he's just an inspiration to me because of the way he says yes to things and the way he jumps into things and jumps into things beyond the page, which is what I imagine Brandon Sanderson does as well. Yeah, it's great that you're mentioning that because, you know, I was talking about passion earlier and we're talking about the why and uh, ND mentions this in the interview that it's also about like, who are you? <laughs> you know, are you a person who jumps at everything, who says yes, who has, you know, the time, energy and resources that it takes to do this massive kind of build out that is not for every author. Uh, but I think there's something about genre fiction that does seem to breed that kind of passion or a particular kind of author. First, I think like people tend to geek out in major ways on sci-fi and fantasy in ways that are just unprecedented <laughs> when compared against other um, other genres. It's like there's also the world building, the commitment to characters and storylines that don't really exist outside of genre fiction. Um, And I'm also really curious about what drives the genre fiction author. Uh, I'm sure it's a lot of things, but one of them has to be love of characters. Uh, Because Endy's cast in her newest book, 
barely gold. They're shapeshifters. So this, they're very cool because they have human forms, but they're bears and they're elephants and they're these like prehistoric birds. Um, it's super creative and also very graphic and physical and intense. So I got I got really into it and I, people know like I don't read a whole lot of um, sci-fi fantasy. So it, it is a really good one. And what she's trying to achieve too is equally important which is to explore the societal conditions under which child trafficking develops and flourished. And she's doing this through a rendering of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So it's really interesting, needless to say. Um, and, you know, we all know purpose fuels writing. Uh, so I just am really happy to bring ND on today, you know, just thinking about all the ways in which she's entering into the writing space, you know, from passion, from knowing her why, from the, um, you know, the brand building, the the characters, the series is just a lots, lots, lots of good stuff to touch upon here in this interview and I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too, Brooke. I can't wait to hear more from this very intriguing and enterprising author, which we're going to do after this short interlude. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so pleased to have N.D. Jones with us. N.D. is a doctor of education, a USA Today bestseller who lives in Maryland with her family. I want to read a little bit about the bio that Andy sent me because I love how much it uh, talks about her mission statement, which is a lot about what we're going to be speaking about today. Um, In her desire to see more novels with positive, sexy, and three-dimensional black characters as soulmates, friends, and lovers, she took on that challenge herself. Along with the fantasy romance series Forever Yours and contemporary romance trilogy The Styles of Love, she has authored three paranormal romance series, which is super exciting. I have lots to talk about there on that front. Uh, She's also the author of several works of nonfiction and the creator of an adult coloring book series, the founder of Kumba Publishing, an art audio uh, ebook and paperback company that is a forum for creativity and has a commitment to promote and encourage creative works from authors and artists of African descent. So cool. Welcome, Endy. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, so thrilled. And I found you through Publishers Weekly. So I read this story about uh, you and your most recent book. Um, And I was just taken by the write-up that they did about Barely Gold, which is a dystopian Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Then I read it, (laughs) and uh, I was blown away, you know, by the complexity of the plot, the social message, your incredible scene writing. And I especially loved some of the more violent scenes that were just so (laughs) well-rendered. You have a very epic imagination. Um, And you've written a lot of books prior to this one. So I was wondering if you could start by maybe sharing something that was special or unique about this book or this protagonist uh, and just to share with us a bit about Barely Gold and um, what draws you in about it. Sure. Uh, Barely Gold is the second book in my Fairytale Fatal series with Crimson Hunter being being my first book and that's a reimagining of Little Red Riding Hood whereas Barely Gold is as you already I think noted is a reimagining of Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So, of course, the question is, you know, how am I going to reimagine that? And just like anyone else, I, I go through um, a lengthy process. I, you know, I do a lot of research, and, and a lot of that research does not make it onto the, the actual um, page. But um, as I spoke to Grant earlier, and I, I talked about being um, a teacher, so social studies, I, I read a lot with um, social justice and, and equity. My, my 
degree is on cultural um, intelligence. So that's my passion. That's my heart. And that invariably finds its way into a lot of what I write. And so as I was just brainstorming, the whole idea of of um, um, child trafficking, um, child sexual abuse, it came up. As a matter of fact, I remember a, a fellow author a couple of years ago posted on Facebook about a lot of African-American girls having gone missing. And I'm, I am in Maryland and I am in Baltimore, which is very close to D.C. And we have a lot of young African-American girls who were snatched up, who we've never heard from again. And it's a tremendous sad issue that isn't talked about nearly enough or addressed addressed the way it really should. So I thought, what would possibly compel a seven-year-old little girl to break into a home, to eat food that you know belonged to her, and to just basically fall out, just sheer exhaustion? And that's what came to mind. And I'm, and I said, yeah, you know what? This is something that really needs to. Um, I need to write about and it needs to really be put out there in the public domain, even if it's woven into a fantastical story. And I engaged in quite a bit of research and it was, and I like to say this, not because it's a good thing, but I think it's important to note that some research that authors perform is very painful to read. It's painful knowing and I kept telling myself, if these women, these young people, and yes, they're also males as well, if they could survive to tell their story, which is the reason why I was able to read about what happened to them, then I could at least honor that and taking it in and then putting it into a story. And, um, and I'm saying it's a story here, but we know it's, it's, just, it's just unfortunate real life and it's around the world. It is truly international in scope. Yeah, it's interesting, Andy, because while I was listening to you, I mean, one, I don't think I truly, truly know how it's so deeply international in scope. You know, I mean, I've, 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 I've read about it in the headlines, but I don't know that topic deeply. And, and it's such a, you know, deeply real life, deeply painful story, and yet you chose to write about it in the genre of fantasy. And so I'm curious about why fantasy spoke to you as a way to tell this story. Beyond that, it's simply, you know, what I write. Um, for some people, I think it is easier to consume real-life hard-hitting events when it's couched in a way that might be a little bit more palatable for them. Um, but fantasy is just, you know, I can have shapeshifters in it, but that doesn't mean that what you discuss as far as the emotions and what transpires is not based in what we know. That's the known piece. So yes, I may have an Impudulu and that's my main character and she can change into this huge, um, historical African, um, ancient African bird. That's great. I have people who can change into um, elephants and can shift into uh, bears. That's great. That's the fantasy piece. And so that may draw individuals who like that fantastical element. But I think what holds an audience, what holds a reader, 
is that emotional connection that you can draw on. And that's the piece that's actually just simply real. And it's hard. Like I've read like some reviews and, re- reviews and people are like, you know, it was like difficult. I've also read reviews in which people thought that I was very respectful and I honored it in the right way. I, I wasn't trying to be um, gratuitous because that's not who I am. And it didn't feel right because it's not about exploiting that experience, but going up to the edge and saying, you know what happens next. I don't have to reveal that. So you understand it. So the fantasy piece is just an entryway into telling a much more significant story. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's great. And it also, I think, turns some people on to things that they need to know more about. And like you said, more palatable. I think that's a, an important way to look at it. Um, and I also loved how you shared in the PDW interview about trusting your intuition when it comes to storytelling. I'm curious if that's something that you've always been able to do since you started writing, or is it something that you've needed to hone over time? And how would you talk about that, you know, as a skill to develop for newer writers? That's a great question. And I think what it really eventually boiled down to me is having a sense of self-awareness. In general, I think I am a very self-aware person, but when you're engaged in something that's new and you're immersed in it, you don't always understand everything that goes into why, why you do what you do. And with me, for example, engaging in these types of discourse, it, and it's it forced me to think about my why and my how. And then I start to learn that about myself. And it evolves from one book to the next. I've had to learn to really trust myself as a writer, as I've learned to trust myself in other aspects of my life. But I think that self-awareness is important. So, So for example, when I begin a book, I don't always know every aspect of a book, but I've learned to trust that it will eventually come. And I'm a very logical person. And so sometimes I'll look at something I've written. I'm like, I don't remember that, but I know that it had to have made sense to me at the time. <laughs> so I'm going to go with it, but that's a, that's a, a um, evolution, but it's that metacognition piece that kind of like comes later. Well, indeed, Brooke and I were talking earlier about how some genre writers are really expansive and, and go beyond their books, you know, to have, you know, different, you know, side hustles isn't the right word, but like you're a great model for this because your website, you know, it's fantastic and you have, you know, books, but you also have other products, you know, you've got a blog and a newsletter and a gift store, you've got a reader's group and you have spin up products and you have your own publishing entity. So I'm, I'm assuming all this is, is more than a full-time job. And I'm curious at what point in your writing career did you take the bull by the horns and decide that you were going to go all in or was it just more of a kind of gradual progression definitely gradual I am not a full-time author so I'm often tired <laughs> I'm a full-time educator and, and I'm grateful for it because I'm constantly learning as an educator so even today I took a class you know dealt with equity and I'm writing these lesson plans and I listened to a couple of your podcasts this week as I'm you know on my commute and it it made me think about kind of like my, my why and I'll, I'll, I'll hopefully I can get a chance to share share this piece with you. But to answer your question, everything is about learning. So when I when I first started, I started with, with like kind of like a, um, a traditional on, online publisher and I learned a lot and because I didn't know anything. And so I, my first, my first two novellas and then my first full length novel was published through a traditional publisher. And when it came 
time for me to submit my second book and my first um, trilogy, I looked at my contract differently. So this gets to how I, I went from signing on with, with a traditional publisher to um, founding Kumba Publishing. So I wasn't in the same um, new person, new author um, mindset when I received that fourth contract. And it looked differently to me. It was exactly the same. And it didn't feel comfortable giving away so much, giving away first first refusal rights. And then I read it and it was like, it wasn't just first refusal rights. It was so much more than that if I wanted to have spinoffs. And I did. But in the beginning, I couldn't conceptualize that I could write something that was so much bigger than what I initially foresaw. But they weren't willing to change. And they said, well, no, no, thank you. And that, that gave that gave me a door to go through to do something that was um, more in tune with what I wanted to do. And so that meant that I had to learn a lot more. I had to learn a much broader aspect of the business other than just being a singular um, writer. And so what you see on the website are products of years of me learning how to do all these different things of me interacting with different people of me participating let's say in different vendor events and I see what people want when they come up to me and I realize that I may not have what they want or what they need so some of what you see is a response to a need that um, I've observed when, when people want books for kids and I don't do that but I can do other things that might appeal to that particular base with but staying within my particular brand. Well, I definitely want to give you an opportunity to talk more about your why, because that's important. And um, and the, I, I'm the question I had was about Kumba. So it's a Swahili word that means creativity, which just opens up like a lot of curiosity for me about like, is, is that an honoring of your heritage? And you have this uh, specific mission to promote and encourage creative works uh, by authors and artists of African descent. So is, is maybe you could talk about the why am I, am I leaning in the right direction? Maybe there's part of it. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Kaumba, um, Kaumba, the word um, itself, like you said, is Swahili, but it's also for, for people who, who know a little bit or perhaps even practice Kwanzaa, which we do do in, in, our, in our home. Um, I mean, we, we also celebrate Christmas as well, but we set aside that week for, for Kwanzaa and what we do as a family, we know we have our lighting. And so we take, we have two children and we go through each day of, of the, um, of the week beginning on December 26th through January 1st. And we look at each of the principles and we talk about the applicability for us as individuals and how we apply them in our lives throughout the year. And so Kuwamba is one of those um, principles. So when I was thinking, trying to figure out a name which would really encapsulate, you know, me, what I, what I wanted, that came to mind because it was very personal. So I, I am often asked about my why. And, and I think what I'm going to say will resonate with you because I think it's very common for people who may be, who may be members of, you know, the so-called, you know, marginalized group. And it's just simply about, you know, having, you know, um, access about seeing themselves in books. And the piece that I, that I will share with you when I was looking at um, 
this equity information today. It's it's uh, she's 85 years old and her name is Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop. And back in the 80s and 90s, she did a lot of research around um, children's literature and, and fiction, specifically when it comes to schools. And she started, you know, doing a lot of research and, and looking at children's response to books. And of course, when children were able to see themselves in books, the results on, on tests and whatever other types of, um, of assessments, it actually increased. So I, I wrote something here that I actually wrote down because I was thinking about our conversation when I was studying today, but she 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 says that um, children's books um, that are mirrors that allow them to see themselves and their own experiences. They are windows that can look through to see other worlds that can compare to their own, and that there are sliding glass doors that allow them to enter other worlds, and that's so perfectly encapsulates like my why or um, what you read about Kuma Publishing and, you know, um, and why I entered this domain. And it really is for our books to be mirrors, windows, and sliding glass doors. And I never used that term before, but, you know, it's not new. And the fact that in 2023, we're still having this conversation speaks to the continuous need and the rub that a lot of authors like me kind of, continue to find as we kind of maneuver in this whole publishing world here. I thank you for sharing that, Andy. Um, I, I oftentimes, when, I, when I'm talking with writers, ask them to like pause and really like write what their why is. Because I think sometimes writers forget their why, for one. You know, they get caught up in the whole path to publishing and what it means to be successful and all that. And they, they lose track of why they even started writing. And I think you're, knowing your why is such a strong force, you know, to to decide what you're going to write about and also just how to wake up and do the work. And so I'm just kind of curious, how how does your why drive you and lead you as a writer and and as, you know, overseeing Kumba Publishing and the products you produce? You know, how, how does it weave itself into your everyday, I guess, in a way? It's simply who I am at this point, you know, in in my life that... I, there's some parts that I have to actively think about. And what I mean by that is if I'm writing a particular, let's say, type of character, um, a, a particular representation from a group that I am not a member of, that maybe I don't have the requisite knowledge um, um, base for, then I, I have to be even more cognizant of how I represent person type A or person type X, because what you don't want to do, at least not consciously, is to be, you know, offensive, um, unless you have a character and that you're being mindful that you are being deliberately offensive. I'm being, I'm talking about being unconsciously offensive, about being culturally incompetent, about those, that unconscious bias or the implicit bias that may sneak its way in. And it invariably does because we're all people and and it happens but what I try to do on a conscious level is to minimize that as much as as possible and so I think that my you know my reading my certain level of sensitivity to that it helps and and I give you a perfect example so my first trilogy my death and destiny trilogy the first book I wrote that in 
let's say maybe 2014, 2015. And then that was the book that was with, with the publishing company. And when I received it back in 2019, I rebranded the entire series. So what I had to then do, reread the book. And then I had to read it with a, with a, a lens that was in a, in a much older me, more knowledgeable me when it comes to, like I said, cultural intelligence, cultural proficiency. And there's definitely some things that even back then when I was really trying to be conscious and deliberate many years later, I'm like, yeah, that can't stay. You need to take that out. Now, now, as authors, the more books that we write, we don't always have the luxury or the time, or we don't necessarily want to make the time to go back and do that. But it's kind of what happens Maybe you, when you write it, you may be your best conscious possible self in that moment, but things change and you grow and we aren't stagnant. And so sometimes you go back and you look and be like, yep, I used to think that way. Yeah, we don't use this terminology anymore. And you're given the opportunity to to fix it or, or to understand if people complain, you understand where, where it comes from because you wrote it during a certain time period in your life. So I hold myself to a certain standard, but I also give myself a certain amount of grace to know that probably nothing is terrible, but I can understand that if I wasn't where I'm supposed to be at a certain place, that you just, you, 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 you get better for each book. And that includes so many different aspects of who you are as a person that bleeds over into who you are as, as a writer. Well, Andy, before we end today, I may, I wanted to make sure to ask you a little bit about the art and just the whole family aspect of the work that you do. Because if you poke around on your site, you say it's a family affair and you have uh, pictures. I, I think it's your kids and your partner, yes. uh, which is so cool. And the artwork is fabulous. And I, I feel like this is kind of unique to genre writing and probably specifically like science fiction and, um, and fantasy, where you have this opportunity to bring to life your characters and your protagonists. And then, you know, if the fans love it, then they can buy the art or, you know, all this cool stuff that you have going on. Um, and so I, I'm always recommending, especially to genre writers, you know, to look to other writers, honestly, like what you're doing to say, this is how you uh, amplify, you know, so I, I just I wanted to end on just having you say a word, you know, about like art involving your kids. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, do you recommend that people do this or, or do you think it's like kind of biting off more than you can chew if you just want to focus on the, on the writing? You know, I think everything is, you know, based on your individual um, likes, dislikes and your time. I love comics. I love manga. I love anime. And so anytime I can have a, an illustrator create an original piece of artwork and I've deliberately put those in there. I love it. My daughter is is an art student um, at one of our local schools here, Micah, and she's animation. So I've learned so much being a mother of an artist. Now, I can barely draw a circle, so that's not <laughs> where my creativity um, lies, but it does with her. So I've learned so much from her and I've integrated art into, into my book. So, and, you know, we do artful thinking in schools and so we want to be really more mindful of integrating that into our books. And so when I made the transition into coloring books, I'm like, yeah, it's not just in the books. Let's, let's have them colored. Let's put them out there and people purchase them because everyone's not necessarily going to read a whole book. Everyone's not necessarily into coloring. So you can meet people where they are and still get that same feeling of seeing yourself in these different forms of creativity. Hmm. 
That's cool. That's very inspiring. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Andy. I appreciate your time. Thank you very much. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. Well, Grant, this week's book trend is a cautionary tale because with social media as it is and with so many people weighing in about what is and is not appropriate, I feel like the likelihood of getting embroiled in an online scandal is way more likely for authors than it ever has been. Uh, And you and some listeners know that one of my imprints got entangled in some TikTok drama that I can't talk about quite yet, but when I can, we will tackle that story in a future trend. Uh, But then just as we're recording the show, this thing happened with Elizabeth Gilbert that feels very adjacent and familiar. So we're going to talk about her story instead. Yeah, it's a very interesting story, and I, I, I've just read a little bit about it. I guess I guess the takeaway here is that, like you said, there's no shortage of social media sagas to unearth, and they can be very painful. Um, so I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about what happened to Elizabeth Burke. Yeah, I mean, the gist of the story is that she made a big announcement in early June that her new book is coming out. It's based on a Russian family that lived alone in the Siberian wilderness and went undetected for half a century. The novel is called The Snow Forest, and it tracks this family through the snow forest, uh, which according to Liz, you know, is just a book about testing um, their limits, uh, both of their physical and their spiritual worlds. So the outrage and condemnation was pretty swift on Instagram, basically people saying that the book, because it's set in Russia, is tone deaf. It's not the right time to write about Russia when there's a war going on, when Russia instigated that war. Um, And then there were also, you know, as the thread continues, people, I mean, there was a pile on for sure. Um, But then later, (laughs) when she revoked the whole thing, and and decided that she was going to not move forward with her publication, there's an equal contingent of people saying that her self cancellation is problematic, uh, that it sets a dangerous precedent. Uh, And so I mean, what a thing for her to be involved in, you know, like, it felt like there was an equal number of people saying, you know, this is terrible. um, And a number of people saying, you know, it was terrible that she uh, canceled herself. And so I I felt that she was in kind of a no-win situation for sure. Definitely. That's what it felt like to me too when I when I went and took a look. And and so shortly thereafter, um, Elizabeth announced on social, meaning Twitter and Instagram, that she's delaying the publication of the book, which was set to release on February uh, 2024, which also happens to be the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And it's a good post where she acknowledges that she's heard the feedback and she really understands. And, and this did feel like an example of someone getting hard feedback and taking ownership and then taking a hard action. Uh, But I'm curious if you think this will appease people, Brooke, and what will be the fallout for Elizabeth Gilbert with her publisher or as an author? Yeah, I mean, so Liz announced in her social media post that she has other books that she'll turn her attention to. I have no doubt that she has another focus, um, which is good. But I also have no doubt that this could be a pretty big setback. I mean, books are a life force of their own. Uh, And even though this book was supposed to come out in February, uh, she was clearly kicking off her promotional tour now with this big announcement. Um, And that would have been the beginning of a pre-order campaign. 
I can't imagine the books have already been printed this early. I don't know, but hopefully for the sake of the publisher, they're not destroying all those books. Um, for the publisher, anytime a book is not yet printed, then that's a major cost and crisis averted. Uh, but even if the books have not been printed, a lot of work has gone into everything so far. Her publisher, Riverhead Books, um, I, I looked and I didn't see that they've made a statement to date about this whole thing. So maybe probably they won't. Uh, they might just feel it's better not to say anything. Uh, you know, as I was saying before, like you, you can't win, you know, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. <laughs> and so uh, I just, I'm sure Liz is having a lot of emotions, you know, as someone who's been like, I follow her closely. I, I, you know, part of her, her fan base and she is a people pleaser, you know I mean? She loves her fans and I think this has got to be really wrenching. So I, I don't know, you know, all the personal fallout, of course, but it, it's a multi-layered situation that she's going through. Definitely. Um, but I do want to note that her announcement saying that she was delaying publication was a good example of how these announcements should be done. You know, she was clear and somber and she said she heard the comments. She was acting. She didn't apologize, but said that I understand why people are upset. And I also heard in that message, though, a, a little bit of bafflement as she explained that her Ukrainian readers would have been upset about any story taking place anywhere in, in Russia. So it's, it's, it's fascinating how these things happen because we, we've been here before in publishing where it seems no one on the inside considers the impact to the broader world of readers. And clearly this stems from the question of, you know, who's at the decision making table. Yeah, so true. And I guess we'll see if this actually is a precedent setting event. As some people have claimed it will be, you know, people have said like her, her cancellation of herself is a, is a problematic precedent. Uh, but I think the precedent of authors and publishers acting to cancel based on pressure from social media has totally already been set. <laughs> you know, it's not that Liz is the first person to go through this. Uh, and the other thing to note, which is really a big thing and was kind of, again, similar to what we went through is that uh, the readers or her fans or whoever, you know, her Instagram followers went to Goodreads and immediately started doing the one star review pile on. Um, and so what happens is readers or potential readers are upset. Um, they go to Goodreads to air their grievances. And so then those Goodreads stars, they have nothing to do with the book. You know, they're about the story or people's upset or the hurt or the outrage. And honestly, like, I don't know how I feel about that. Yeah, I'm not sure I feel either. You know, it's it's a mode of expression, obviously a mode of protest, but it's also not a conversation. And, and I feel like moments like this um, with books are opportunities for a dialogue, you know, a learning moment. And I'm, I'm not sure if a one star review from people who didn't read the book creates an environment for a dialogue because it's more about uh, being a punishment or a silencing even. But it's also a powerful tool and I can see using it in some cases. So I, I need to think about this more. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. And uh, we're we're witnessing some stuff, you know, that just feels very much in the culture. And I, on the one hand, I think it's important that readers have, as you said, like some some power, you know, it's a powerful tool to hold power to account. Um, also, as a longtime fan of Liz's, you know, I think she handled this as well as she could have. I wish her the best. Um, listeners, thank you as always for uh, taking the time to listen to our show. We appreciate you so much. And, um, you know, fun for us to get to cover some of the things that are in the news as we speak, even if they feel hard. And uh, certainly would love to hear from you if you have thoughts on, on this or other trends or other future trends you want us to cover. Thank you. We'll see you next week.